and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and it's no secret that I love how non-musical pursuits inform and influence our music making. I'm always coming up with analogies when I'm teaching or working in rehearsals, and I absolutely love it when I find a new one that fits with a particular musical context. I was watching a documentary series about the All Blacks last weekend. There was footage of the 2017 team in a training session. I almost said rehearsal, same thing. And fly half Lima Sopoanga was practicing his kicking. The assistant coach Ian Foster came up to the young player and said, don't kick with your leg, you kick with your whole body. Foster was basically telling him that he shouldn't just fling his leg upwards, but had to get his body behind the action to drive the movement. I loved this. In cello playing, I'm always telling my students and myself, shift with the arm, not just your hand. And it's the same thing. It's a common thing for players to want to reach and strain for a certain note, resulting in inaccuracy a lot of the time. Think about how accurate you have to be to be a fly half in rugby. But the movement has to come from something larger, knowing your foundations and where the movements stem from. It got me thinking. I love when I find a new analogy to put things into context, so I'm going to use this one a lot now. Reminds me of what Justine Cormack said in episode 27 about being centred and grounded. So if that's of interest to you, then I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to it if you haven't already. How exciting. My guest this episode is my good friend, Jen Lang. We are linked in a number of ways. We grew up round the corner from each other in Auckland, although we didn't establish this until years later. My mum and her dad used to work together. Jen was at uni in Wellington with my husband Mark, and about a decade later, Jen and I found ourselves working together in Southbank Symphonia in London. Since then, she's worked for Britain Symphonia and is currently on maternity leave from her role as Senior Manager of Learning, Engagement and Innovation for Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Jen is hilarious. The time difference is difficult between Melbourne and London, which meant Jen opted to chat to me in the wee hours of the morning, though I doubt she's getting much sleep these days anyway. We open our conversation as Kiwis in Australia often do, complaining about how no one understands our accents. Here's my chat with Jen. They don't understand and or they don't ever seem to get tired of taking what they would term as the peace. <laughs> the peace? Indeed. <laughs> no, in, indeed. Indeed. Like so. Well, somebody accused me of saying something very funny the other day in a Kiwi accent and I was so pleased I nearly hugged them but then remembered that that's a no-no these days. So, ah, oh, what a world we do live in. You can't win. You can't. I yeah. shook somebody's hand the other day and she nearly spat on me. And then she remembered that that would be a lot worse than shaking <laughs> their hand. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And apologize profusely for having been so polite. Oh, dear. But that would have gone down well in the UK, I feel. The profuse apologizing. The profuse apologizing. Yes. Well, it's something that is definitely part of my background with my father having been brought up with English manners. He telephones us every day to talk to his grandson, Lucien, and apologises 
first and foremost for having interrupted us and called us without fail every time. So Anthony, my partner, has a bet on how how long it's going to take before Dad will apologise three times. Oh, and wow. so far, 30, 30 seconds is, is the winner. I know. Oh, I love the sort of amusing dad tallies that you can do. For me, I think with dads, and I'm not sure what it's like with your partner, but dads in general tend to sneeze in series of at least five. So that's the tally oh, I take. I think Ant tends to condense the five into one enormous explosion, which inevitably either wakes the baby or terrifies the baby so that there's a moment of deadly silence afterwards and then uh, just screams of distress. So, yeah, same, same. Oh, that's, like, really hilarious. I thought I'd kick things off officially. (laughs) It's lovely to hear your voice, Jen Lang. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. And thanks for waking up bright and early because I understand it's 7 a.m., for you it is 7 a.m it's halfway through the day for some of us over here Davina thank <laughs> you it's lovely to be here thanks for having me oh man and also I imagine it's halfway through your day because you are looking after a newborn baby as well congratulations thank you yes I thought there was nothing else going on in 2020 so maybe we'd make things interesting and pop out a sun. Yeah, what a climate to bring someone into the world. That's very true. Although in some ways it may be a blessing because it's such a disruptive event that all of the other disruptions have come as part of the tide of disruption. And so we've been able to weather the storm relatively well, I feel. Yeah. When was he born? He was born on the 21st of August, and I sincerely hope I've got that right. It would be embarrassing if I hadn't, but I'm pretty sure that's right. It'll become evident if it's right at some point in the future, in about a, a year or so. It'll be most indignant. Exactly. Yes, about a yes, in a year's time when I forget his birthday, he will be indignant. He came along on the 21st of August, so we had a chance to experience much of what 2020 had to offer before he made his arrival so you were like yeah lockdown we've got this okay let's have a baby now and what's it been like bringing up a newborn in one of the longest strictest lockdowns in the world I mean Victoria where you are in Australia had been in lockdown for a really long time over 100 days right that's correct 111 days I believe it was the second lockdown so not both of them together, just the second one. Yeah, It's been really interesting. And what's been fascinating has been the fact that the rest of Australia, the seven states and territories, have taken very different approaches. So Victoria, as you say, where I am, was the only one that actually decided to lock down fully for that second wave. We had a community outbreak that was associated with mismanagement of our quarantine hotels, unfortunately. And they just went the whole hog and said, you know what, we're going to look to New Zealand, what New Zealand had done and done so successfully in terms of elimination of the virus and community. And we're going to give it a go. And it was a controversial decision. But, you know, I look to your figures over in London and I look to the US and various other places. And as you know, is Croatian. And so he's looking to Croatia where they're getting two and a half thousand cases a day with a similar population to Victoria and I'm grateful that our government cares enough to you know put us through our paces. Yeah put the citizens first I mean I tell you it is very different here I think where all of 
three or four days into our second lockdown here. But I've got to say, it doesn't really feel like a lockdown so much. I've already been into a school to teach, so that's different from the first lockdown. And in a way, that's qu- it's quite nice to actually have something to do in a day, leave the house, have a reason to put on a bra. and <laughs> Some could argue that leaving their house is a good reason not to wear a bra, but we'll, we'll, we'll take that on down to different topics some, t- some other time. Uh, but no, I, I, know, I know what you mean, but it's funny how much it's, it's affected our psyche over here, I think. We're so cautious and just you saying I've gone out of the house nothing to do with the bra but just you saying we've gone out of the house to a school makes the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up because we're just so cautious and Mm. you know even going into schools everything is socially distanced and there are only half size classes that are back in schools and you know all that all those sorts of things and it's fascinating talking to people even in different states of Australia and also in New Zealand where they had a very strict initial lockdown as you know but have been pretty relaxed since then life's more or less back to normal Mm. and they're talking about going into bars and not bothering necessarily to scan in with the QR code system that they have and to my horror so I've been telling off everybody but different approaches here they're very anxious that they don't know what the long-term effects will be so we all talk about that a lot and We'll be as careful as we can in the meantime and yeah. are looking forward to what they're calling double donut days. So zero deaths and zero new infections. Is that what they're calling it? And that's such an Australian thing to say, isn't it? We are looking forward to the double donut days where we've got zero infections and zero deaths. <laughs> I will have you know that we've had eight double donut days in a row. So we are doing splendidly there we are we'll drop it in for the first time (laughs) splendid that's a little uh, hint of where you've lived a lot of your life in the past it's funny having this affect your psyche as you mentioned before how you almost shook someone's hand and that was met with horror with the recipient and I get this if I'm watching tv or something and it's something filmed in pre-covid days and I'm starting to think now oh those two people were standing a bit too close together it's really affected me. Absolutely. And I was thinking about the difference between talking to friends who are riding on the tube for the first time in London, mm. you know, during your second lockdown, just in the last few days, and thinking about <laughs> my first day arriving in London back whenever it was with a cello on my back, turning around and sending somebody flying down the length <laughs> of the carriage by smacking them in the face with my cello. <laughs> The poor guy then got up, came and profusely apologised to me as we were discussing earlier. Because it was his fault that you (laughs) whacked him with your cello, which sent him flying. So that was, of course, his fault. (laughs) Well, he was British. I mean, what else can an Englishman do other than apologise for having been hit in the head with a cello? Yeah. But yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, you you look on and and you just think very differently about the way things I think now about when we're going to go out for dinner, which is still a very new concept. We haven't been anywhere for three and a half months and that's not because of the baby. <laughs> that's because we have been allowed to. Yeah. But, you know, where can we sit outside, for example? But at least for you, the weather's getting better, whereas we're going into second lockdown, going into winter. But actually, maybe you have some tips for us. Like, how do you survive lockdown in winter when you can't really spend that much time outside? What do you do? Well, have you heard there's this great game called Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> I have a long list. 
long list of recommendations. I think Nights in Front of the Fire and Udi, if if you come across one. What what what, what did you say? Udi and and and. <laughs> it could just it could just be the odd accent. It's, are they called Udis? They've got there's like a giant hoodie that's like a weighted blanket. I thought you would try to say like that Danish concept word of like coziness and getting together, hygge. Yeah. Well, there is that. And now that you mention it, I wish I'd said that, but actually I was just referring to an ad that keeps popping up on my Instagram. Yeah, I see what you mean, like a wearable blanket type thing. A wearable blanket is highly recommended. Yeah, I've known those in the past to go by the term slanket in 30 Rock. That's what they call them, slanket. They did. That's a blast from the past. You're showing your age there, my love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, actually, Mark and I, we've just been watching Parks and Recreation which was made between 2009 and 2015. And there are so many Joe Biden references and appearances actually in it. So it's weirdly topical to be watching now. You know, it's actually been quite nice watching something like Parks and Rec, which can restore your faith in politics because it's just so heartwarming. Well, let's see how Joe gets on. Very, very exciting news that you've woken up to. And as I mentioned before, I woke up to as well from my mid-afternoon nap. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, that's not what any new parent bliss, wants to hear at all. Absolute bliss. <laughs> it is super exciting and it does restore your faith in humanity somewhat after the four years, which went really slowly at the same time as going really, really fast, I think. I don't really know how that happens. Absolutely. Well, like everything, you know, perspective is an interesting thing, but I'm I'm really interested to know what the combination of things that have happened this year, and it has been a big year, the combination of COVID and lockdown and, and the sort of the digital revolution and the way we consume and, and, and experience our, our performing arts, being the area that we're both interested in, a particular area we're both interested in. And then, of course, the change to the political scene, how all of that does affect what we do in our lives, how we work and how the public value what we do or how we engage with the public how they need us that is your field of expertise i believe leading on to what we're going to talk about today we use the term expertise in the loosest possible sense you've got to own it you've got to own it <laughs> well i'm sure you know more about this than i do <laughs> you are working as the senior manager of learning engagement and innovation for melbourne symphony orchestra although not currently as you are on leave maternity leave but also you've worked extensively in the UK as well for Southbank Symphonia where we work together and also Britain Symphonia so tell me about your personal philosophy about outreach and engagement of audiences like how you got into this line of work it's just it's just a short <laughs> podcast right it's, it doesn't it doesn't go for it's not a marathon 24 hour sort of an affair we're looking at a three four parter here you know <laughs> <laughs> oh, your poor listeners. They'll be fast asleep. Put this on at night time when you can't sleep and, and you'll be fast asleep in minutes. <laughs> the Jen Lang season. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. In terms of starting out, because of course, one's philosophy develops over time. It would be lovely, wouldn't it, to sort of, you know, wake up when we're born and go, this is what I believe in life and, uh, and I shall sally forth and make it so. I mean, Lucian's got his philosophy under his cot already, right? He has a philosophy that is largely based around breasts. Cool. Yeah, great. <laughs> and 
interestingly enough, particularly in this year, I think, you know, needs must often, or adversity is the mother of invention or any of those sayings that spring to mind. So when I started out working in outreach and education, for want of, you know, better terms to wrap this area of work into, I was, I think, in my third year as an undergraduate, you know, studying music at Victoria University in Wellington in New Zealand. And we needed more opportunities. We needed more opportunities to perform. We needed more opportunities for our composer colleagues to write. We wanted to have more fun with, with what we were doing. We wanted to do things a little bit differently from the way that our lecturers might want to do things. We wanted to do something that was outside of the university orchestra or, you know, the coveted internships with the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. All of those things were marvellous experiences but we needed to do more and our teachers were telling us you need to perform 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 I got very nervous when I performed and so they said oh you know do as much of it as you can where when how (laughs) (laughs) just do the thing that doesn't exist and you'll be fine sure so yeah well exactly and and so we thought all right tell you what a captive audience are school children because they're not allowed out so (laughs) why don't we go and play to them you will listen and you will (laughs) like it and you will be inspired absolutely I'm very honest there was a certain degree of that it was much more about the fact that we wanted to do something fun it was a group of us at the university and as mentioned I had a composer friend who really wanted to compose something and have it played more than once And so we set up a little company which created a children's opera out of one of my favourite poems from when I was a kid, Custard the Dragon, about a cowardly dragon. It's really quite fun. And we toured it around schools in sort of the regions around Wellington and, and, and throughout Wellington. It was this extraordinary experience where we discovered that not only could we be curators or um we could be guardians of this extraordinary tradition that we we're all training in you know western classical music that we're all very passionate about but we could also have fun with it we could go out and we could rediscover the joy in making music together the joy in classical music some of it was pre-existing repertoire some of it was brand new repertoire written by my friend and we could share that joy there's nothing so refreshing as you'll know as performing to <laughs> A group of small children who are completely unfiltered and uh, will tell you exactly what they think, whether it's good, bad or otherwise, uh, up front. And the joy, the excitement, the boredom on occasion, it's all right there in the room with you. And it makes it very, very real. It's all very honest, isn't it? Mm. And I think when you're working in the profession, it's really easy to forget that. People get really caught up, I think, especially at university or college level when you're really honing your craft Mm -hmm. and you have to remember that you've actually got something to offer as well. When you were performing around the place, did this spark a passion for reaching new audiences? It did. So this idea, as I say, you could be the guardians of something wonderful, but you could also have fun with it. And the having fun with it could involve people who might or might not have had the opportunity to encounter this art form before was something that I thought was really interesting. And it was a space in which I suddenly didn't feel nervous anymore. I didn't feel worried about whether or not my version of the Bach cello suites was any good at all. And, you know, whether I was going to be compared to Casals, because of course that's what I was thinking I'd be compared to. (laughs) (laughs) That is 
is a, a valid dilemma that a lot of students face. And it, it's like, how do you compare to these greats? Because you only know about the greats. Absolutely. You only see it's them. hard to know what else is out there. And it's not until like you, you make your own opportunities. You realize I can be a guardian, as you mentioned, but create my own canvas exactly so that there is something more than the the very sort of uh, shiny and illustrious performative career obviously that is an extraordinarily important and valuable part or majority of what we do without those benchmarks and those amazing inspirational performances and opportunities live performances and recordings without those where would any of us be we've all been inspired by a moment like that but we've also been inspired by somebody coming in and sharing the pure joy of doing what they love and that was the joy of making music that I rediscovered in that context and then realised over time that perhaps being the soloist was not <laughs> my calling. What do you say in that voice? <laughs> the soloist. Well, it, I mean, it's such an elite position one feels one has to put on a funny accent. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, because I think a lot of people don't feel entitled to speak like this and, unless they're upholding some kind of status. So, oh, so as you mentioned before, you didn't want you didn't want to be the soloist. <laughs> well, the soloist wasn't perhaps what you know what, the way that I could contribute to music, but I was surrounded by extraordinary talented people, you know, who could you know who could be soloists who could or who were playing professionally in orchestras or in their chamber ensembles or in whatever context they had found for themselves, the pathway that they had found to share their music making. And I discovered that I had a, an ability which was to champion and to showcase them and that mm -hmm. I was much more comfortable and much happier when I could be, as it were, that, there's that word again, a curator or a producer which supported those people in bringing their art both to audiences who knew and appreciated it, but also to audiences who may never have had the opportunity to do that before. I think my philosophy has been based around these abilities, these talents. If you go, you're not very good at doing something, you don't tend to focus on it. On, on it. And I discovered that <laughs> what I was good at doing was drawing connections between dots. So I could see that using that early example, we needed to do more performance. There wasn't a music education in schools program at that stage in New Zealand. So it was something that was needed in the schools. We wanted to include new compositions. So it was a connecting of those dots. And that's certainly what I've done wherever I've gone in various positions. Mm. Whatever the focus of the particular organisation has been, whether it's been a venue that puts on concerts or whether it's been the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra that's wanting to broaden its audience base or the South Bank Symphonia where we work together where it's about young professionals honing their skill and discovering which pathway they want to take. It's all about looking at what are the resources that we have, what is the need out there, what are we trying to achieve, who are we trying to reach and how do we do that. So it's less a philosophy in many ways and more of a practical skill that says, well, we'll join these dots. I mean, it doesn't always yeah. work. You know, sometimes I think I'm something like the ancient Greeks and I sort of go, well, there's a star and there's a star and, oh, look, it's Sagittarius, you know, and <laughs> I don't know about you, but they don't often look much like much like a centaur with a like, bow. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like, oh, wow, you're reading a lot into that zodiac sign. <laughs> How did they come up with that? But of course, I mean, like with any job, there are times where you need to try something and then you realise it 
it doesn't work and you reevaluate and you have to be realistic. I think that's what I find from what you outlined just then is just being realistic with the times and the resources, as you said before, mm-hmm. that are available to you. Yeah. So going ahead, like in, in your work now in this current climate with coronavirus and going ahead in the digital age, what sort of trends do you see going forth? Well, it's interesting because when you're putting together these dots, you are always thinking, what am I trying to achieve? Why am I doing this? And great personal passion is obviously valuable, but it's not enough to say, well, I think music's great, therefore you should. One needs to sort of flesh out this this concept somewhat. Yeah, you have to think about what your audience wants as well. It's not just for your own personal gain. Absolutely. And digital allows us to do that in a really different and interesting and exciting way I think. Lydia Gerd, the philosopher and and musicologist, she talks about the musical work, you know, the idea of music being stuck in a museum, the imaginary museum of musical works. And I guess what I think digital can do, and indeed what this work can do in general, is to take music out of a museum and start to play with it. You know, imagine if you're as a young person or as any any age person, you can go into a museum and you see these beautiful things and you could actually take them out and you could play with them. And yes, you could break them, but it would be okay because you can put them back <laughs> together again. That's the beauty of music is that, don't get me wrong, I've heard some, you know, to go back to the bar cello suites, I've heard them broken spectacularly by myself and by others. Uh, but um, <laughs> But the beauty is that somebody else can come along and demonstrate, can play with them and show them to you in yeah. the most beautiful way and a new way. You can see new new aspects of them. And so if outreach or if this area of work is about taking these objects, if you like, out of the museum, taking them perhaps literally out of the concert hall and into new contexts, but also taking them out of the context in which people have come to understand classical music and showing them that it is still relevant and exciting and interesting and can speak to them even today and particularly today and taking it out of out of its glass box and having the opportunity to play with it well then digital allows us to do that in an entirely new way of course it allows us to do things that one can't do live and I think that's the key with really successful digital engagement is not that it replaces a live experience it's that it offers something that is not possible for a live experience. So it offers an enhanced kind of experience of some kind. The great thing about, you know, the split in 2020, there's BC, you know, kind of before coronavirus and AD in my yeah. case is sort yeah. of ad desperatum, but it's an entirely different, entirely different reasons. But, you know, sort of after coronavirus, we do have this digital revolution. I know certainly at Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, our digital plan was sort of in its infancy stages and we got hurled five or ten years into the future and sort of had to hit the ground running as a small team and leading on our digital engagement in those early months and you know go for it do what you had planned for 10 years time but do it by Friday (laughs) no pressure with varying degrees of success but what an extraordinary opportunity to learn on the run But one of the challenges that we came up against immediately was the immediate expectation was that we were going to try to replicate the live experience, but online. So, oh, let's stream concerts live online or raid the archive and show concerts live, which actually just sort of underlined the fact that we weren't allowed in the concert hall and that people couldn't experience concert live. So they did have a part to play 
But as you said before, you have to really find what it is that digital can offer specifically that a live performance can't because then otherwise you're just, yeah, as you say, you're just going to get a whole audience of people who are pining to get back into the concert hall. Absolutely. Which is something that they can't which do. Which isn't a bad <laughs> thing, to be honest. <laughs> that was definitely part of our strategy was to say, here's this concert and it's really nice that we're doing it online, but wouldn't it be lovely if as soon as possible you could buy a ticket and come and see it live? Sure, yeah. I mean, in terms of publicity, that is a really great thing to get people excited again about getting back into live performance, something that perhaps audiences took for granted. But sitting at home and watching a live stream isn't the same. It can never replace going to a concert. Going to a concert, absolutely. That shared common experience, which is one of the absolutely central delights and beauties of performing art and of, I think, orchestral music making and orchestral performance in particular. That shared experience yeah. is, is really something quite special. So, yeah, so we tried to focus on how we could re-explore, how we could take these archival performances, as it were, out of their boxes, out of the museum, and play with them and have fun with them and experience Take them. them out from behind the glass. Exactly yeah. so. Does that count as a philosophy? I haven't given you a philosophy yet. I would say your philosophy, as you said in your own words, is joining the dots with varying degrees of success. It's an ancient Greek philosophy. <laughs> I'm, I'm creating a zodiac of musical experience. There we are. Oh, my gosh. I would love that. Yeah, one for each month of the year. <laughs> You could do that. Let's do it. One for each concert <laughs> in the season. A really obscure, like, jaggedy symbol for each thing. Yes. This is expressionism. Yes. <laughs> or this is a trombone. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, can't you see? That looks more like a pineapple to me. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the philosophy. Well, the beauty is that it's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? It uh, sets, your, sets your imagination free. <laughs> So that when you yeah. gaze up at the the metaphorical night sky of beautiful works of classical music, you can find your own pineapple or trombone. <laughs> totally. It's, all, it's always up for interpretation, much like the Bach Suites. As I mentioned before, and you worked extensively in the UK, how would you feel like your work in the UK informed what you're doing now in Australia? Oh, that's very interesting. I tend to think of it the other way around because I think of coming from New Zealand and then going to the UK and then coming back to Australia. But you're absolutely right. It is actually that way around. Um, <laughs> right. Sure. You're a little bit of a boomerang, I've got to say. Oh, there we go. Very Australian. Love the reference. I think the UK is really extraordinary. There are a couple of organisations in particular which have really seen the UK at the spearhead of orchestral outreach and education and audience engagement work. The London Symphony Orchestra, the Opera House to a certain extent as well. Several organisations, they've forged a pathway and then coming up I shouldn't say behind them, but as part of that pathway, uh, smaller organisations like Britain Symphonia, some you know, 25 years ago, where the concept of performing a brand new commission in every single performance they ever did was a really extraordinary one at a time when new music really needed that belief, as it still does, of course. And of course, Aurora Orchestra have been a really exciting and yeah. revolutionary. Really innovative. Yeah, innovative group more recently. How do you memorise an entire Beethoven symphony and perform it at the Pines every year? <laughs> <laughs> it's an extraordinary feat, isn't it? Yeah, it's a totally different approach. And I think 
as an audience interesting as well because there's so much more focus on the players on stage and that engagement between the players yeah it's a really cool thing I was thinking about it the other day and ended up trying to describe it to somebody as the difference between perhaps seeing a performance of ballet let's say which has extraordinary physical feats compared to a performance of circus which has similarly extraordinary physical feats but they're much more obviously physical feats as opposed to ballet which perhaps has a more aesthetic approach and hides the mechanics of just how difficult and physical it it really is exactly it's very like nuanced I think audiences love to see that I think we're at a point where we admire orchestras but we don't necessarily know or realize unless we've had the good fortune to actually play in them or try to play in them just how difficult it is just what a skill it is and how talented these individuals are and how incredible it is that they can all come together in such a beautiful way so it's sort of that architectural style of stripping things back so that you can see the structure underneath and that's a really amazing audience experience I'm not sure that it's necessarily something that say well this is the future of performance you know one should never have music but it's a way it's another avenue yeah it's it's another avenue and something that might strike a chord with one particular person there's not ever going to be just one path there are so many different ways to engage with this type of music that is definitely what this sort of music needs because it's been said before that classical music has got image problems people have this perception that it's really elitist and it's just really important to have different approaches so that people can choose their own adventure as they like well I I think it's also important to remember that beyond our bubble perhaps where we're actually in the middle of it so it you know it's part of our lives People only really experience classical music as a recording. So it might be a film soundtrack or it might be in a shop or, you know, it might be on the radio. But the live experience is is very rare. It's a very precious Mm. sort of experience. Temporary. Yeah, it's temporal. And as you say, making that something that has as many different access points as possible is definitely what I learned from the UK and was able to sort of bring back to Australia. There's some really interesting, quite dorky um, (laughs) differences we can explore between the UK and Australia. I mean, Australia is an enormous and very, very wealthy country, but it's really sort of, you know, seven different countries, as you know, all sort of put together on this huge continent Mm. and everywhere has very different approaches. And because of its geographical isolation and because each state has its own large professional orchestra, or most of them do, of which, you know, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra is Victoria's, they sort of operate a little bit in isolation. And so they haven't had to perhaps evolve or change or explore these different avenues because their role has been to be the orchestra, to be the orchestra in the in the oldest, most traditional sense, to be these guardians, as we were talking about, of this ancient and revered tradition. And in a way, to be all of those things, uh, all of those stereotypes that we know about orchestral music. And that's been their role for many, many years. And now all of a sudden, this process has been accelerated by COVID. Actually, we need to explore what does that mean? What does it mean not just to be an orchestra and to be purveyors of fabulous art, but what does it mean actually to be an orchestra for a place, for the people that live in that place? And I think that's been what I've experienced in the UK where they explore art and different ways of engaging with art and how art can affect 
society, culture, education. That's what we're starting to unpack here in Australia, particularly at Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, is music may not be something that everybody loves. It may not speak to everybody, but it can speak for everybody. And so how can we take our role seriously as an organisation that represents a place, a culture, a people, many peoples? As you mentioned before, operating in BC and AD times, (laughs) ad desperatum, I liked that. But in a way, it's kind of a blessing having different ways of bringing music to the people in a location which, as you said before, is really isolated. And I imagine there would be so many challenges in BC times, doing musical outreach in a country that is so far spread out as Australia. Have you found that now there are some things which are easier in terms of overcoming that geographical hurdle because things are being approached in different ways now? Absolutely. On several different fronts, that's very true. Being online means that absolutely anybody anywhere can access what we're offering. The challenge, of course, to that is that absolutely anybody anywhere can access what we're doing. So we need to make sure that our voices are cutting through because there's a lot out there, but also that it's worthwhile and that it's engaging in a way that's got to be different. It's got to be interesting. It's not a poor man's replacement. I see what you mean now about accelerating five, ten years into the future, but get it done by Friday. It's been a huge and very rapid learning curve. And it's been about who has the biggest, craziest imagination and can make it work really, really quickly and really, really efficiently. Overall, it's been the single most challenging set of circumstances, but also the single most inspiring set of circumstances. It opens up a bunch of opportunities. So here in Victoria, schooling went entirely online for a term and a half. So we had a, a, a you know a long period of time where we knew that we had, as it were, a captive online audience. And teachers, bless their hearts, who were absolutely desperate for quality content to actually you know to share and to use and so here are the joining the dots again you know you've got a set of circumstances and you've got to find out what resources we had so all of a sudden we were in a position where we couldn't necessarily create any new content with that involved people having to be in a room because they weren't allowed to be in a room Um, or they could only be in a room you know one or two people at a time and so it was a really interesting creative challenge not just across Australia geographical challenges but suddenly you're putting content out there that's being picked up internationally do you want to encourage that do you want to uh, you know make it as accessible as you can for uh, speakers of different languages for example all these sorts of both opportunities and challenges and they do make you think in an accelerated and more concentrated fashion about this overarching question which is behind all of what we do which is you know how are we reaching audiences why are we reaching new audiences what is it that classical music is bringing to our culture to our society just going back to your question about what I learned in the UK and how that affects what I do here in Australia I think one of the really interesting differences about Australia and New Zealand I think I can lump them together in this one context so that we abhor that ordinarily don't we (laughs) the antivities one of the differences about us which is something that's really interesting is that while we don't have the centuries-long kind of history behind us as Europe does of this Western classical tradition. What we do have are Indigenous cultures and series of voices which 
orchestras and classical music is just beginning to explore how to champion, um, how to embrace. And that's a really interesting challenge in and of itself and of our time. So that's a sort of a concentrated example of how you can be an organisation that is for your current place. Because as you mentioned before, music speaking for everyone and also just giving that voice to all different cultures as well. And I think that's really exciting because that must present some cool opportunities for collaboration and also just education about Indigenous cultures that weren't as prominent 20, 30, 40 years ago. And the platform, I think, is a really important word because all of the stereotypes are true. You know, we are a deeply respected art form and feared, perhaps, and somewhat inaccessible. But what if we were to use all of those things for the better, you know, for good? What if we were to use those things and say, well, look, you know, this orchestra, this revered, you know, highbrow organisation believes in this cause and wants to champion it. We want to champion the voice of these Aboriginal artists who have been passed over and ignored for centuries, whose voices were literally silenced because they were not allowed, they were stolen and they were not allowed to speak in their language. And what if we were to take that language and we were to put it front and centre stage in a gala performance of a requiem written in Indigenous language, Gunditjmara, and we were to say, we believe this and we are using our position as this revered organisation to say this matters and you need to learn about this and you should hear this. Deborah Cheatham, who's a fabulous Indigenous singer and composer here in Australia, working fantastic advocate, and she actually wrote the piece to which I alluded, a requiem that's written entirely in Gunditjmara language and Indigenous language from here in Victoria. And I had a conversation with her and put my hands up and said, look, I don't know very much about this landscape. Can you help me? Can you guide me? And she said, look, the only mistake you can make, the only bad thing you can do is not to do anything at all, is not to ask any of the questions, is not to take a step and perhaps make a mistake and perhaps say the wrong thing and perhaps insult somebody. But if you understand that you've taken that step in good faith and you apologise for having insulted them and you learn from that process, then that is never a bad thing. And it's a terrifying thing to do. And it's particularly terrifying to do when you're in an official context. But I also don't want to not ask the questions and not try to do this work because I'm afraid of treading on it on somebody's toes. Because then I guess that way, if you don't try, then nothing changes. Precisely so. And that lethargy is, I think, something that people are guilty of all over the world in different contexts. Oh, it's too difficult. It's so complicated. I don't want to offend anyone. I'm white, middle class, you know, and therefore it's not my place to do this. Actually, uh, it might not be your place to speak for those people or speak about that but it is definitely your place to educate yourself and to do your part in moving forward the understanding and education of others surely absolutely the education comes first because then otherwise you get people who maybe intend well and then it falls down that dark alley of cultural appropriation and then that gets super awkward but then also people who think well if it's not my job can can you tell me more about this and then the burden can quite often lie with those people who are already marginalized and that's another thing to carry on their shoulders and recognizing that we have that ability to speak not for somebody 
but to amplify their voice so that it is heard. Exactly. To give that platform and allow people to listen to that. Absolutely. I was so lucky. I was exposed to music as a child and, you know, music was in our household. Neither of my parents are particularly musical, but they understood that music was a really important part of life, as was sports, as was, you know, um, acting and theatre and, you know, all sorts of other things. I was very, very lucky in my upbringing and found a joy in music which I couldn't explain Mm. and which I still in many ways can't explain to people but I just something that I wanted to to share and finding also that not just sharing but that you can do your tiny little bit of good in the world or tiny little bit of of educating when people say music education they they often think of us you know going into a school and and a student learning how to play the piano and that's great for their brain development and etc etc and all of those things are absolutely essential and wonderful and a great part of what we can do is as musicians however for me that larger education that education of myself and of a society and of a future Mm. generation which means that we will live in a more positive more inclusive better stronger world is genuinely exciting yeah totally and music is used then as as a metaphor for the for the bigger things it's very true to say that when you're teaching someone music it's not necessarily just to create more musicians to pump more musicians into the world but it's it's to create the next generation of music appreciators and people who can see beauty in society and in in life and in all sorts of things and just appreciate the world in a really really positive way this year more than any other again you know a lot of people have talked about this but it is it could not be more true you were talking about isolation earlier and we're talking about geographic isolation but individual isolation we've all experienced this probably for the first time in our lives in most cases actually feeling genuinely lonely and genuinely isolated because of lockdowns and and so on and the arts and it's not just music obviously allows us to express ourselves which allows us to explore and share these experiences that are otherwise terrifying overwhelming and isolating it's unifying music is so important to bring everyone together. unifier absolutely well the bit that i find most interesting is and music's a great example of this is that it's about the individual being 100% valued within a system. You Mm. can't have a unification without there being a many to unify. And I think people misunderstand that sometimes and think, oh, unification is a whitewashing and I just disappear into the crowd and, and my individual voice is lost. Actually, it's your individual voice contributing, which makes it what it is, which makes a unity what it is. So in an orchestra, for example, if we use it as a metaphor, if the second clarinet stops playing, there's a hole. It's not a unification anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it, you really exactly. matter. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like that. E pluribus unum, as, as they say. In the we're States. getting a lot of the Latin in today. <laughs> I think you, I think you, <laughs> a lot of the Latin and the Greek. The Latin Gosh, us in our classical education. <laughs> I'm sure there's a classicist listening somewhere who's absolutely squirming. So you may or may not know in my podcast, I have this segment where you get to choose what I ask you next based on three topics that I present you. I've been so excited about this. And I just have to warn you that one of the symptoms of the disease of early motherhood 
is that it's very difficult to make decisions. I had to decide between a cup of tea and a cup of coffee this morning, and it took me a good 20 minutes. So fire away, and really? I'll do my best fire to be away. as decisive as possible. Wow. I mean, I would always choose coffee before tea. As you mentioned before, you did have a coffee, which is the right choice as far well, as i I think that's why we still love and talk to each other, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, quite often the unifier between Kiwis is good, good coffee, coffee, right? Oh, that's a whole other podcast right yeah. there. So your three topics are, <laughs> sorry, I just looked at what I wrote down. It's just quite funny given what we were just talking about. So first one, cravings. Second, secret talents. And third, what I'm listening to. So we'll just wait another 20 minutes. I was just going to say, would you like to pause and <laughs> and then we'll, go, then we'll come back to it? Or you know what? Because it's first in the, in the list, and I'm quite big on doing things in order. <laughs> Let's talk about cravings. Tell me more about exactly what you meant before I dive in with some really inappropriate <laughs> anecdote. <laughs> no, it's 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 super vague, but um, it's just funny because cravings, and we started talking about coffee, and of course now it's like nine o'clock in the evening for me, and I'm already thinking about how nice it would be to have a cup of coffee tomorrow morning. It's ages away. That's how much I love coffee. But the question pertaining to you, in a year of deprivation, what are you most craving? Do you know, I mean, I, I could I could just say chocolate, but to be honest, I've had an absolute glut of that. So <laughs> it's not going to be food related <laughs> at all. Do you know what I am most craving? We've touched on this already is the immediacy of the response from a live performance. And I was thinking this yeah. morning about some of those extraordinary and fun moments that we've had with live audiences, as all of us do as performers. And I hope audiences do, you know, those moments where they had a, a fantastic connection with a performer on stage for whatever reason or with a performance. And, you know, we, we should all sort of think about those moments and we've had reason to since we've not been able to do it yeah. in person recently. So I was I have been craving the live performance and that immediacy of feedback. And one of the moments that sprung to mind, which is probably not one of the more profound moments, but that was a, a lovely thing, was in my early days in the UK, I worked at the Church of St. Martin in the Fields and I ran there, was in their concert department, helped to run their very extensive program of concerts that takes mm. place in the church. And there's an extraordinary thing about St. Martin's is it has an audience. It's like backwards of anywhere else that you might be making music where you're trying or, or performing arts of any kind where you're trying to get an audience in. It actually has an audience because everybody knows that it's famous for its concerts and they just come. They just go every night. They know that there's the four seasons or whatever <laughs> yeah. is on in, in the church at seven yeah. o'clock every single night and they will just turn up and, and music will and play. Music and, will play. And that was an extraordinary kind of first experience, you know, first professional experience in terms of working as an arts administrator as opposed to a performer. I was lucky I was looking after the the lunchtime concerts which are free and so I could do whatever I wanted with them I thought it'd be fun to you know have some educational elements as well and and have something for the kids as well as for the adults and so one day I thought it would be nice to talk about the new window in the church so at that stage you knew so this is a good you know 12 13 years later or whenever whenever which is why I turn a prize-winning yeah. artist this beautiful window if you haven't been into St Martin the Fields Church and seen the beautiful east window do go in and have a look it's gorgeous it's very contemporary modern design we talked about how the artist was inspired by the way that 
the organ music in the church sounded and the way the sound waves sort of traveled around the church and the swirling almost watery motion it's a really beautiful concept and we were talking about this with mm. the kids and i said you know we're going to listen to some organ music and you can have a look and see what you think you know what what do you see in this window in this kind of slightly impressionistic window what does it make you think of sparking their imaginations and thinking there'd be this absolutely beautiful response as only children can give i was really excited had a microphone, of course, because it's a big church, a big space. It's open to a lot of tourists who are coming through and people coming in to say a quiet prayer and use the space as a church, as it actually is, of course. A small chap raised his hand at the end and he said, I would like to share what I see. And I said, all right, well, here's, here's the microphone so you can tell us all. Giving him a platform. Very good. It looks like the inside of a woman. <laughs> So what I'm craving (laughs) are are these beautiful and immediate responses. And you know what? I mean, obviously (laughs) there are different types of responses, but you know what? They're all valid and they're all wonderful and they're all part of the human experience. And how can that not be addictive? How can that not be something that when it's missing, you don't crave it? Exactly. And that's what you get from face-to-face interaction, not just performance, but just interacting with another human being that doing it online cannot completely replicate but like to be in the same room as someone drop an absolute clanger of a window looking like the inside of a woman <laughs> it's nothing He's quite like that right, by the way and and now there's going to be a flood of nutrients oh, yeah. i love that very profound answer to cravings because like as, as i kicked it off i was like i want coffee and you're like i want the immediacy of oh of don't get life. me wrong i'd love another coffee as well <laughs> And I well, can. you can. It's I morning can. for you, and I will. I'm not yeah. sure if coffee necessarily, you know, goes through into your breast milk. In which case, that would explain why I have a hyperactive baby. But yeah, it can't be that bad. I mean, he's going to grow up. He's half Australian and half Kiwi, so exactly, he's going to be a coffee addict anyway at some point. One hopes so. I mean, mix a little in with his formula, and he he'll will. be off. <laughs> Jen, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast and sharing your passion for musical outreach and engagement. It's been wonderful to listen to. Where can people find out more about yourself and the work that you do? I am very passionate about the work that I have the good fortune to be able to be a part of. And at the moment, the best place to check that out is the MSO YouTube channel. So that's Melbourne Symphony Orchestra's YouTube channel. If I may, I could highly recommend the Beethoven Bites, which are a fabulous series of short videos which unpack Beethoven's Seventh Symphony in a really fun and exciting and engaging way. There are one or two dad jokes in there. Please forgive me. I do the dad jokes as well as the mum jokes in this household, much to everybody's (laughs) horror. But it's a really, really fun and engaging way, both for music lovers who know and enjoy Beethoven symphonies or for if you're brand new to, to this genre, it's a really cool starting yeah. point. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you once again for joining me. Thanks, Davina. It's been so nice to chat to you. That was the wonderful Jen Lang. I admire how coherent she is at seven in the morning. 
I can't say I boast that talent. Continuing on from her anecdote about the east window at St. Martin in the Fields, she told me another story which I've decided to feature as this week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me segment. Like all London icons, the Church of St. Martin in the Fields is residence to an impressive rodent population. You know those cute little mice you see zipping across the tracks on the underground just before the tube billows into the station? A further rite of passage for these diminutive daredevils is to scurry between the feet of unsuspecting concertgoers during one of St. Martin's famous candlelit concerts. There must be something about the ambience, the gentle lighting, the baroque music, the pews packed with a mouse-averse public, which make this particular stunt a must-do amongst mice. One evening, my contemplation of the familiar continuo lines of Vivaldi's Four Seasons was interrupted by the appearance of a tiny-tailed intruder, which crept its furry way slowly and ever so deliberately to the very centre of the aisle. Having claimed the best seat in the house, it appeared to settle in for the duration. Experience told me that, should any of the esteemed patrons of the human variety tear their attention from the performance and glance down, the strains of winter would be met with a chorus not of applause, but a scream and leaping upon the pews. With my most carefully cultivated nonchalance, I made my stealthy way down the aisle, dustpan and brush in hand. With brazen boldness, the creature stared me down never so much as flinching at my covert approach. Congratulating myself on a crisis very nearly averted, I knelt down to scoop the wee creature up and carry it to the freedom of the open square. At the moment when my face was as close as it could be, the creature tilted a head, wiggled a whisker, shook violently, and then exploded in a small but impressively messy splat. If only we had opted for the relative calm of screams and leaping upon pews. That was Jen's exploding church mouse anecdote. Not nice. Although in our household recently, we found out what's worse than a dead mouse. Half a dead mouse. Assistant producer Romeo very kindly left us 50% of a dead mouse just by our bedroom door recently. We never found the other 50%, which is the most worrying part. Remember. If you have something that Music College didn't prepare you for that you'd like shared or discussed on the podcast, let me know. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Tremendous and splendiferous thanks to Jen for being my guest in this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. It's great to hear from listeners, and I appreciate you getting in touch. Recently, my inbox has been full of emails from real, actual people, rather than bots. So that's great. Let's keep that up. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the pod on Facebook and Instagram at asitcomespod. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for spreading the word. Chat to you soon, and take good care. Bye. (laughs) Bye.